Well, good morning. It's uh, December. It seems incredible that it's already December. And what we're going to do is we're going to spend the entire month, um, not just as individuals like you, what you're doing in, in uh, your own family and in your own life, you're kind of ramping up for what's later in the month. Well, uh, as far as Sunday mornings go, we're going to spend the entire month as well ramping up for Christmas. And there's one main reason why, and that's because it's a big deal. It's not a big deal because there's going to be a lot of family gatherings, although there are going to be a lot of family gatherings taking place. It's not a big deal because there's going to be a lot of big meals, and there probably will be a lot of big meals happening for many of us later this month. It's not a big deal because there's going to be some gift exchanges happening, but uh, uh, that can sometimes seem like a big deal, but uh, that's not why. It's a big deal because of the gift, the gift above all gifts, the gift of Jesus. And that's what Christmas is all about. And so we're going to spend the entire month, all four Sundays, you know, devoted to uh, drawing attention to that. So let's get started. If you had a job, your job was to write the story of Jesus. If someone tasked, tasked you with that job, write the story of Jesus. One of the decisions that you would end up needing to make is what that first paragraph is going to look like. What that first page is going to say. Because you would want... For your readers, as soon as they've read a paragraph or two, you would want it in some way or another to grab them, to kind of pull them in to want to read more, right? And so you know that it is of great importance, you know, how you start out. So how would you start out? Would you start out in the, that opening paragraph on the story of Jesus, would you start out by saying that what is contained here will transform your life? Would you start out with the expression that says something along the lines that what is contained here is the greatest story of all stories? Yeah, perhaps. Or you would use something maybe along those lines. But yet there were four individuals that were tasked with the job of telling the story of Jesus. They're the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How did they start? Well, let's look at the very first one, the first page of the New Testament. And what we're going to be seeing is this. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David the son of Abraham. Abraham was father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. David was the father of Solomon. Okay, I think I'm going to stop. <laughs> All right. 
I didn't even get six verses into it. It was like halfway into verse six. So, you know, approximately a third of the way is about all that I read. But uh, it's just names, right? Names after names after names. Some respects, someone might call this, um, even though it's not a complete chapter, it's two-thirds of the first chapter of the New Testament of the Gospel of Matthew. Someone might call this the forgotten chapter of the Christmas story. Because this is the part that, uh, you know, doesn't get read very often. It's a genealogy. It's just a list of names. And a number of those names are somewhat unpronounceable. At least you do struggle with them. And because of that, this is a passage of Scripture, even though it's the very first page of the Gospel of Matthew, the very first page of the New Testament, this ends up being a section of Scripture that gets overlooked. It ends up being a section that gets skipped because we don't know what to do with it. In fact, if you think about it, um, when was the last time you ever heard it read in public? Outside of what I just started doing a moment ago. Yeah, if, if you have heard it read in public, it probably was a long, long time ago. The reality of the matter is a lot of people don't read it in private either. Even people that are trying to read through the Bible like in a year or something. Yeah, this is the section that you kind of like a a rock skipping on the water, just read a couple words of every third verse, you know, and just kind of fly through it. Matthew chapter 1, it's just a long list of names, starting with Abraham. It goes to David, and it ends with Jesus. Now, you look over in the third gospel, Luke. Luke contains something similar to this, except he includes it in the third chapter of his writing, and it includes Jesus, and then it talks about David, but it goes back to Adam. So it looks a little bit different, but yet there are similarities. Kind of reminds me of an old story that I heard a long time ago about a guy who was uh, given the assignment and paid to do this, uh, was to read a phone book and to write a review about it. Now, we don't even use phone books anymore, right? You know, you may have one in a cupboard, but it or in a shelf somewhere, but it's like stuck all the way in the back of the shelf, and it's just you haven't gotten around to throwing it away yet. We don't use phone books. But he was given this assignment to read a phone book and then write a review. And so he did because he would get paid out of it, but his review simply said this, great cast of characters, weak plot. <laughs> you know, and that's kind of what someone could conclude with the first 17 verses of Matthew's gospel is like there are a few names there that jump off the page and it's like hey yeah I know the story about that person or that person so we might say yeah it's a great cast of characters but it's like okay there's really no plot to this what is contained here my point is we routinely skip this passage of scripture even though it's on the very first page of the New Testament we skip it because we want to get to the good stuff. We want to read about the teachings, the parables of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. We want to read about the miracles that Jesus performed, that being the good stuff. And it's unfortunate that we do that. Genealogies, uh, 
don't grab most of us. Now, there are a few in here. Uh, you might really be up on that, and you may have studied your family tree, and you maybe even have charts or have it all broken down and stuff like that, but most of us don't. I don't. You know, that's, that's not something that's been uh, high or even on a priority list in my life. But I do, I do remember a time a few years ago that a preacher friend of mine um, who just moved to the state of Kansas because uh, he was starting a new church with the Christian Evangelizing Association, the same outfit that, that we started Crossroads with. And uh, um, his last name was Kelzer. And uh, he was sitting in on one of the board meetings that, that Brad Fogo and I, uh, you know, attend pretty regular. Uh, and apparently in that meeting, somewhere or another, I made the comment that I was born in Seneca, Kansas, which is Nemahaw County. And, uh, um, and he made a mental note of that, and he went home, and he started pouring over all of his studies as far as his family tree is concerned because he knew that uh, the Kelsers moved here from Germany back in the 1860s, and they settled in northern Kansas. And, and so now that he heard that I was from that area, um, he started seeing if the name Fangman appeared, and sure enough, it did. In fact, the name Kelzer and Fangman intersected twice that he could see, that there were marriages there. And so the next CEA meeting, he came up to me, and boy, he said, I've got some news for you. And so, I, I, you know, when the meeting was all done, I was like, okay, what's going on? And I thought he was going to talk to me about his church or something. And he's saying, he's saying, I studied my family history, and your name pops up in there. And I'm just like about this much interested. It's like, okay, well, that is kind of intriguing because my relatives, it was in the 1870s that, that they came from Germany. And, and, uh, um, but really, the only thing that ever changed was whenever I would see him following that, I'd call him cousin. And that, that, was, about, that was about all that changed. Because I just, I'm not into genealogies. And a lot of people aren't. But, you know, people who are, oftentimes, they are in a big way. Well, Looking at this passage, what I want to do today is I want to take a closer look at this and answer the question, why is this passage important? Why is it a mistake just to skip over it or even take it and tear it out of the Bible because we don't plan to ever use it? You know, why is that a mistake? What, what do we gain from this? I want to suggest three things to you. Number one, it shows Jesus was a real person. It shows Jesus was a real person. The humanity of Jesus is something that is referenced multiple times in the Bible. In fact, in the New Testament, you'll see it, and you'll see it again, and you'll see it again, and you'll see it again in multiple places. In John's gospel, he's one of them that was writing the story of Jesus, the fourth gospel. And in the first chapter, um, he's, he's referring to Jesus when he says, refers to Jesus as the word. I'll talk about that a little more in two Sundays. But it says, the word became human and lived among us. It was a specific point that John wanted to make, is that Jesus became a human being. In the book of Hebrews, we read this in the second chapter. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, children being people. You know, since, since people, since we have flesh and blood, Jesus 
took on flesh and blood. Paul, in the book of Philippians chapter 2, he he devotes a little more space to this. He says, though he was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself. And so, like I said, you see multiple places in the New Testament where this particular part of the story is being brought to the surface and and attention is being drawn toward it, that Jesus was a person. He became a human being, and you will find that again and again and again throughout the New Testament. On the surface, having a list of names may not seem in and of itself overly impressive, but what it does is it shows readers that this isn't a fairy tale. This is a true story. This doesn't begin with the words, once upon a time, you know, like fairy tales begin. No, this begins with a family tree, helping to communicate that there's some roots here. He was actually a person. He didn't appear out of thin air. He had a human family. He was born into a real family, and that's part of what this genealogy shows. Let me just give you one example of of some of the importance in the Jewish minds back in the first century, because that's who Matthew was writing to. He was trying to communicate, uh, and that's why he uses multiple Old Testament prophecies of Jesus that he was going to come, because he was trying to communicate to the average Jewish person that Jesus really is Jesus. He's a fulfillment of what the Old Testament talks about and uh, that he really was a person. Uh, so, So back, even predating the first century when Jesus was born, the Jewish people were taken into captivity. They were in exile um, to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, remember all of that, you know, story. Um, And they were there for decades. And it wasn't until the 6th century B.C. that they actually were released and allowed to start going back to their homeland. But that was after decades of being in exile. And so when they went back to their homeland, where modern-day Israel is at today, one of the things that had to be determined was that they had rights to their family land, their family farms and homes and all of this. But in order to be able to, to prove that you had a right to all of that, you needed to be able to show by way of genealogy that you actually were the kin of the people that were taken in exile from here. And so, so the whole genealogy thing was something that, that people were well familiar with and they understood there was more than one uh, type of value that was attached to it. And so here Matthew is writing this story and he begins with a genealogy because he knows that is going to add credibility in the minds of the readers in the first century because they're going to see this is anchored in history. Jesus really does have ties here with with multiple generations, with in fact the whole history of the nation of Israel. This isn't a myth. 
Jesus isn't a fictional character like one of the gods on Mount Olympus or something like that. Now, there were other ways that today we can, can kind of drive home the point that Jesus was actually a person that existed. We don't have to go back to genealogies and all of that, although it's still there. It still accomplishes what it would have accomplished in the mind of a Jewish person back in the first century. We can look at historians from the first century, non-Christian historians. For example, Josephus was a Jewish historian that was not a Christian, but yet if you look at, at his writings, you will read sections that are devoted to talking about this person named Jesus who people claimed was working miracles and stuff like that. Now, he's not saying all that because he believes all that, but he's a historian. So he's going to talk about the things that happened in Israel, you know, over the time frame that he's writing a history about. And so we have other forms to be able to support this, but that's part of what a genealogy, a genealogy does. Now, this next one kind of moves us even even deeper into this. Not only does it show that Jesus was a real person, it shows that God is faithful. And th this is a, a rather biggie as far as a point goes. What we read in the first 17 verses of Matthew isn't primarily about the people in the, uh, in the genealogy. It's about God. It's drawing the spotlight onto God. That God has been and always will be faithful to his promises. You see, centuries earlier, and you could read about this in the Old Testament, but God had made some promises. He made a series of promises to a guy named Abraham. He's the father of the Jewish people. That's where it all began. Of course, back in those days, his name was Abram, but God had told him that he would be the father of a great nation and that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. It's found in multiple places of the Old Testament, but here's one of the earliest ones, pretty early in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 12 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Okay, so he's talking about how Abraham is going to be made into a great nation. Now, there is a problem with this. At the time that this promise was being made to Abraham, he was married, but he had no kids. He had no family outside of him and his wife. Um, and he wasn't a young guy either. He was already up there in years. He was 75 years old. His wife wasn't a whole lot younger than that. And yet here the promise that God was making to him, Abraham, you're going to be made into a great nation and, and all the earth is going to be blessed. The families in the earth are going to be blessed through your family. Yet you see what Matthew is doing in Matthew chapter 1 in this genealogy. He is helping to show that God fulfilled his promise to Abraham. God had given his promise and God carried it out. Now, there were other promises as well being made that kind of can be traced back to this genealogy is there were promises that were made to David that the Messiah would come uh, from his family line and sit on his throne 
Uh, you can look in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and you can read some of those statements. But it wasn't just Abraham that promises were made to. It was David, King David as well. The prophet Isaiah, uh, uh, not too much later, but at a later time, um, Isaiah wrote these words. And today we look back on this. Even though this was, can be dated 700 B.C., seven centuries before Christmas ever took place. You know, the whole story in Bethlehem and all of that. This is 700 years earlier. Here's what the prophet said in Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a son is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So you see, the promise specifically states that David's throne, I mean, that, that's where this one that is coming you could look at this particular passage and you could actually, in many respects, refer to this as a birth announcement. The unique thing about this birth announcement is it was sent out 700 years before the birth took place. But it represents a promise, a promise that comes from God. God made many binding promises. And what Matthew chapter 1 is doing is it is showing that he fulfilled them. When God promises something, you can take it to the bank. You can count on it. You know, people are always making promises, you know, around us. And so we're not used to people always carrying out their promises. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. We're, we're used to hearing lots of promises, and we know there's a percentage of these promises that we're hearing are never going to see the light of day. They're never going to actually be realized. And I'm not, you know, intending to drag politics into this, but, you know, poli politics, I mean, that's the classic example here. People that are wanting votes, they make all kinds of promises. And the funny thing is, six months, a year later, or whatever, you know, when someone actually is trying to deliver on the promise, we're actually a little bit, like, surprised by that. You know, because we've gotten so used to promises being just that, promises that just kind of fall by the wayside. And it certainly goes beyond politics. Even in our personal lives, with coworkers, with management, with our bosses, with family, extended family members, even within our immediate family. You know, we hear people making promises and, you know, it just kind of seems a percentage of the time those promises, they don't materialize into anything of substance. I remember back when I was in fourth grade. I remember fourth grade uh, in particular because that was probably, of, of all 12 years of school that I went to, um, uh, that was probably my favorite year because I had a crush on my teacher. And uh, in fact, I think most of us, most of the boys in class had a crush, you know, on our teacher. And uh, Mrs. Wilkins was really nice. Now, the previous year, we had a pretty mean teacher. And in fifth grade, we had a very mean teacher. But fourth grade, we really liked that teacher. 
And uh, one of the things that would happen, of course, back in that age, you had recess and stuff like that. But, but when the weather was bad and it was raining outside, you couldn't go outside. And so we would have recess, you know, in the classroom. And Mrs. Wilkins would allow us to just sit at our desk and play or color or draw or visit, you know, with one another. Or if we wanted, we could go up to the chalkboard and draw pictures and stuff like that. We had chalk and erasers for, for any of that that we wanted to do. Well, there was this boy that was just two or three feet to my right sitting in a desk, and his name was Bobby. And uh, one of the things that Bobby seemed to always have was a supply of a handful of matchbox cars. And so he was always ready. I don't know if his mom sent those in a sack lunch when it was calling for rain or if he, he always just kept them in his desk. I, I don't know on that. But, uh, but he always had several matchbox cars. Now, you know, full disclosure, I had one, you know, and it was the old-fashioned metal, hollow kind that even if you put it on a slope surface like a desk, the kind of desk we had, um, sometimes it would roll and sometimes it wouldn't, you know, because the wheels didn't work that well. It was a pretty cheap, uh, older thing. And, uh, and so here, here Bobby was, though. He was cutting edge stuff. This is back when Hot Wheels was fresh out there on the market, right? And so, man, those cars were just flying all over the place on his desk. And, and so um, I asked Bobby something. I said, Bobby, and his cars were so colorful. I said, that car right there, if you give me that car, I'll be your best friend. <laughs> I, no kidding. I, I did this. Mrs. Wilkins caused me to have a lot of memories that have carried all these years. And, uh, and I said, Bobby, if you give me that car, I'll be your best friend. But he didn't. Here you go. He didn't do that. So I, I knew I needed to add a little more to it. And I said, I, I, I got to the point where I said, Bobby, when we grow up and we're out of school and I buy a house, you can live at my house. <laughs> we will live in a house together. We'll be best friends as grown-ups. Bobby gave me that card. <laughs> I don't know what happened to Bobby. <laughs> what I do know is he and I have never lived in the same house. <laughs> you know, we make promises, and there's a percentage of those promises that we just don't carry out. We don't fulfill. It's different with God. When God makes a promise, you can take it to the bank. You know, that, that is why there are Bibles that have the theme promise Bible where they highlight every promise that God made. And uh, it's kind of cool, you know, just seeing the promises, you know, and it reinforces faith in your life into the God that we serve. Okay, now we're ready for number three. I got to say, though, if, if, uh, if you don't read the Old Testament much, you know, the first two-thirds of the Bible, if you don't stick your nose in that part of the Bible very much, then um, you're less likely to catch on your own what this third point is going to be. 
because uh, the genealogy is just going to be names on a paper, and, and you don't know the background of the people. But if you read the Old Testament, you know their background. And so here's the point I want to make. The genealogy that Matthew has in his gospel, it shows that flawed people can be used by God. This, this, is, this is a significant point. Flawed people can be used by God. One of the verses that is found in the book of Acts, I read this when I was in college. The New International Version, the New Testament, was uh, fresh on the market. The, the publishers, the translators had just made the NIV translation of the New Testament. They hadn't gotten to the Old Testament yet. That wouldn't be till 1984. But, but uh, the New Testament was done. And so I was reading it. That, that was in my devotional time. I was reading through the New Testament. And boy, this verse really struck me when I came to this. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13. This, let me, before I read it, let me say, this is where two of the apostles, Peter and John, have been called before the Jewish authorities, the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin basically was a council of 70 individuals that had a lot of clout and a lot of authority in the Jewish community. And Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, that had already taken place. And Peter and John, among the others, they would not shut up about Jesus. They kept talking about Jesus. They kept referencing his resurrection and how they had seen him alive after his crucifixion. And the authorities were getting fed up with that. And so they called Peter and John into them, basically with the intent in mind of saying, shut your mouth. Don't say anymore or else, and you know, and they leveled some threats at them. But this verse right here is, is such a cool verse. It says, when they, the Sanhedrin, saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. The way that, that the, the authorities referenced Peter and John, they were just ordinary guys, unschooled, ordinary guys. But yet they saw the boldness and they, they, they saw the, the courage that they had to be able to continue to defend themselves and to speak the name of Jesus in front of them. It's interesting, when Jesus chose the 12 that would be his disciples, um, to be his official representatives, he didn't pick a single rabbi. He didn't pick a single scribe, a single Pharisee, a single Sadducee, a single priest. Instead, he chose a group of average nobodies. I mean, that's what, that's, that's what the 12 apostles basically were. A group of average guys that were given the mission that represented the greatest mission ever, to carry the good news of the gospel message to the world. And you know, when I, when I read that, and when that struck me back when I was in college, and, and it still does to this day, it gives me hope because I see myself as an average person. I always have. I mean, I noticed some other people, and man, they're really gifted and they're skilled in this way or that way, and it's just like, whoa, I'm in awe, you know, of this or that about them, but I've never been that way. 
I mean, I was always big for my age, so, you know, I played sports in public school and all, but, uh, you know, I, I never was like some of these guys we saw in yesterday's, you know, um, conference championship games and stuff like that, some of the athleticism and stuff. I, I was never, you know, never like that. As far as knowledge and, and uh, intelligence and stuff like that, I was never, you know, exceptional in those regards. I was just an average guy. And yet when I came across this passage, I was just like, whoa, whoa, whoa here. There's hope for me. God can use me. If God could use people like that, guys that just, these two guys, that just specialized in fishing. I love to fish. And it was like, hey, I qualify for that. But what we're seeing in Jesus' genealogy, it goes beyond even this. Because uh, some of the people in Jesus' genealogy, even names that I read in those first six verses, they were flawed in pretty significant ways. I'll only touch on three of them. There's more than three in the passage. Tamar. In verse 3, Tamar is referenced. Now, let me just say this, because I'm going to kind of give you a summary of her story. But uh, um, this story, it reads kind of like a Jerry Springer episode, okay? I mean, seriously. You know, the story of Tamar, it's just, you're reading it, and you back up, and you reread sentences, because you're like, did I really read what I think I just read? Yeah, yeah, you did. It involves her father-in-law, Judah. Judah, you know, he was one of the brothers of Joseph, you know, as far as the, the family line goes. And uh, Judah had at least three boys. Perhaps he had more than that, but he at least had three boys. And his oldest boy married Tamar. But he ended up dying and didn't have any children. And this is going to sound weird, but this is a part of Jewish culture back at that time, was that if, if, uh, um, if, say, you had a brother and he was married and he never fathered a son to carry on his name and then he died, it would be your responsibility as a brother with his widow to father a son. And as soon as you fathered a son through her, then your responsibility as a brother you know, in that regards, it had ended. And so when Tamar's first husband died, it was that husband's next younger brother that was to carry out the responsibility. And there was a couple of issues with that. He took issue with that. Eventually, he ends up dying. Tamar still hasn't had any kids. Now, there is a younger brother yet who's quite a bit younger, apparently, and so what Judah says is he says, all right, go back and live with your dad, which she was supposed to be regularly dressing in widow clothing, but she was to live with her dad. And Judah says, when my, my next son, when he gets old enough, then he will become your husband. But Judah, the text tells us, is that he really didn't intend on that because he didn't want to lose his third son. You know, and so some passage of time takes place. And it becomes apparent to Tamar that Judah's never going to fulfill this responsibility. 
And so one day she hears that Judah is going to go to some nearby town where there's a bunch of sheep shearing that's taken place. And, uh, and so she gets this idea, and she takes all of her widow clothing off and puts on normal clothes, and she rushes ahead of Judah, gets to that town, positions her in herself in some way by the gate where she apparently appears to be a prostitute. And so Judah, who had just lost his wife as well in his older age, you know, he comes along and he decides he wants the services of a prostitute. See, this is where I'm saying the Jerry Springer thing is all over this, right? <laughs> and, and basically impregnates her. Now, he was going to pay her with a goat. <laughs> you guys, you're going to be reading this because you're going to say, surely this isn't in the Bible. So you're going to be, this will be the most Googled thing here, you know, in the area on Sunday afternoon. So uh, he doesn't have a goat handy. And so he says, I promise you a goat. And she goes, well, I need some pledge. How about your staff and how about your ring? And he's like, all right, I'll do that. And so then when he leaves, he sends a guy with the goat. But she's nowhere to be found because she got what she wanted. She has his staff and ring. She goes back to her dad's house, puts her widow clothing back on. Three months later, it becomes apparent to everybody she's pregnant. She's actually pregnant with twins. She doesn't know that, but, but she's pregnant, and it's becoming evident to other people as well. Judah catches wind of this, and he's like, she needs to be punished for what she's done. And so she sends through a messenger the staff and the ring to her father-in-law, saying, the father of the child in me is the owner of these things. And as soon as, Jonah see, as, soon as, as soon as Judah sees that, he's just like convicted and even says something like, she has more integrity than I do, you know, and, and so he doesn't do anything against her and she gives birth and guess what? She's in the passage. She's in the part that I read a few moments ago. She's a part of Jesus' family tree in spite of that history. Does she have a little bit of baggage? Absolutely, she has some baggage. And yet God still used her to accomplish his purposes. Let me give you another example. It won't take as long to explain this one. Rahab. This one immediately rings a bell with some of you in here. The thing about Rahab is she was a person of faith. She is listed in the Faith Hall of Fame in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. So she became a person of faith. But the reality of the matter is she is only mentioned by name eight times in the Bible as a whole. Six of those eight times, right next to her name, it references the fact that she was a prostitute. Okay, and she lived in Jericho. Back when uh, Joshua and, and the army were going to come up and, and, you know, the whole battle of Jericho was going to be taking place, they sent two spies into Jericho. It was Rahab that hid the spies up on the roof of her house and, uh, and then found a way to release them um, through some kind of a rope or something tied out a window, and she was, they were able to, to get away. But um, here she is. In Matthew chapter 1, and she is the great, great grandmother 
of David, King David, the great-great-grandmother, Rahab. And, I mean, if you want to go as far as to say she was the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great, I don't know how many greats you got to throw in there, but great-grandmother of Jesus. She's in the family tree. A tarnished past? No doubt. No doubt. No doubt about it. Let me show you one more. Manasseh. Manasseh was one of the kings of Judah. Um, and there were several of them, and they... Uh, yeah, they were a mess. Uh, some, some of them weren't, but, but a number of them were. Well, Manasseh was the worst of the worst. And the thing was, unfortunately, he had the longest reign. He reigned 55 years as king. And uh, he did unspeakable things. For example, the war worship of Molech. This was the idol, the false god of the Ammonites. And uh, there was a lot of idolatry and stuff that was going on. But uh, the worship of Molech, uh, boy, it was the worst. It involved this brass statue that was made, big statue. It was all hollowed out and everything. But um, it had like a human body, but it had an animal head up on top. And then its arms were outstretched. Sometimes this particular idol would actually have a metal platter on top of the arms. Other times it was just the arms. And what they would do is they would start a fire in the base of this idol. And when it would get hot and the metal would be glowing, they would take newborn babies and they would put it on the platter. And that was the form of worship. You can Google that and you can read that as well. That is a type of idolatry that was happening. And Manasseh, the, one of the kings of Judah, he brought that in you know, to, to Israel in that area. And people actually, he included, participated in this kind of worship. He caused the nation of Judah to do more evil than the nations that the Lord had destroyed before them. And that's saying a lot. And it says it a couple of times. Now, he had a great dad. Manasseh's dad was a real stand-up guy of character and integrity. And Manasseh's um, great-grandson was probably the best of all the kings of Judah. I mean, he was a super guy. But Manasseh, he was anything but the majority of his reign, majority of the years of his reign. Now, late in the game, he repented. He turned back to God. But, you know, he didn't have any influence in turning, influencing people around him to turn back to God because so many decades he had such a bad influence on them, they continued even though he had a change of heart laid on. Laid on. There, there's more to the list, but you get the idea. The thing that I want us to pull out of this is that you know, as well as I do, that right here in this room it's very possible that there might be some individuals that are seated out here or standing up here. There might be some individuals in this room that would really like to be close to God and would really like to be used by God in a meaningful way. But you've scratched that idea from your mind because you've got too much baggage. 
Because when you look back over your shoulder and you remember what was happening four or five years ago, what was happening 10 years ago, maybe 15 or even longer than that, you look back and you're embarrassed about that because you crossed too many lines. And so you basically look at all of that and you just think, I blew my chance to ever be really close to God and certainly to ever be used by God. I've got news for you. That is not the case. When we look at a passage like Matthew chapter 1, I think that's one of the reasons it's found there, is to send a very loud and clear message that in spite of ourselves, God can still use us in significant ways in our life. What is it that 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says? All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us. And it goes on and explains, you know, in what ways. All Scripture. That includes Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. That is inspired by God and it's useful to teach us. What does it teach us? It teaches us that Jesus really was a person, a human being that lived. It teaches us that God keeps his promises. If he said it, that settles it. It's going to happen. It teaches us that even people with baggage can be used by God. Even people with baggage like the baggage you have in your life, the baggage I have, we can be used by God. We're going to have our time of communion. I'm going to pray in just a moment. And during this time, I want to encourage you to reflect on what it is, the whole reason Jesus ultimately came into this world, and that was to pay a price on the cross so you could be freed and forgiven of your sin. This is a time when we eat the bread, we drink the cup, and we allow that to remind us of the body and the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice that he made, the, the substitutionary death that, that he voluntarily gave in order to free us from our sin, to make it possible for us to be forgiven. This is a time when we prayerfully reflect and express gratitude to God. But might it also be a time when you reflect on some of what we talked about here today? Maybe you've wrestled, like I said a moment ago, you've wrestled with how you're disqualified, you know, to ever do anything with God, to get close to God, to be used by God. Revisit that in your mind prayerfully during this time of communion. Because I think God will prompt you He'll, he'll whisper in your ear, he'll tap you on the shoulder, he'll so, somehow nudge you to say, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And that's part of what we're celebrating here is the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the incredible amount of love that you have for us. We're not deserving of that love. Oh, but we are so thankful for it. And during this time, we reflect on the greatest expression of all of your love, and that is the gift of your son, Jesus. And forgive us for ever taking that for granted. We thank you for doing what had to be done to make it possible for us to be able to be forgiven and to be able to have a home in eternity with you. 
Father, I pray that you would use this time to speak to our hearts in a meaningful way about some of the things we've touched on here today. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you.